You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. This week, I'm here to share with you Matt McDermott in conversation with the Grammy Award-winning writer, composer and producer, William Orbit. If you're a record producer, you need to have set down behind a drum kit and had a crack at it. I, I personally love to drum, but I can't get all my limbs in, into working order. I can't get the bass drum and I hat all going, I wish. But, but you need to know what a drummer is feeling and thinking. And, and so being a musician on your own right, and especially with the outside of the studio aspect of it all, is good good to know when you're in with an artist who's not only doing the music but they're doing a hundred other things at once and you can understand that and allow for that. With a career spanning 40 years, William Orbit has been part of the fabric of electronic music through its many chapters in the UK. From his roots in the electronic synth group Torch Song, to his production work for pop icons like Madonna and Britney, William Orbit's journey is a fascinating one. He recently released a new EP on Anjuna Deep, and as you're about to hear, sat down with Matt to discuss combining elements of classical and electronic music, getting the best out of musicians as the studio producer, and achieving longevity in this fleeting industry. I really hope you have a wonderful listen to William Orbit, on RA's exchange. Hello everyone, my name is Matthew McDermott and I am the North American editor of Resonant Advisor. Today I am speaking with a legendary producer um, from the UK, William Orbit. Um, if that name doesn't ring a bell, you've certainly heard his music over the years. Um, Mr. Orbit has produced for the likes of Madonna, um, Pink, Britney Spears, Blur, um, and through his solo productions as well as his his work with pop stars has sh- immeasurably shaped uh, the landscape of electronic music. Um, it's a pleasure t- and honor to speak with you, William. Thank you, Matthew. So you, we were just fiddling around for um, a ridiculously long time, getting getting you know our recording set up straight. And you were you were mentioning you were messing around with Pro Tools, and and Pro Tools has kind of been central to a bit of a creative rebirth that you're going through at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been operating Pro Tools for ever such a long time. You know, I mean, I consider myself a bit of a ninja, you know, I'm an engineer, but I still thought, let's find out if I'm missing anything here. And I went to some tutorials for absolute beginners. And, um, you know, I, I, what's the word, subscribed, because there's some very good ones. You have to pay, but it's always worth it. They're very good. They teach everything. And I did it, and I was like, oh, right, okay, that button that I've seen there for 20 years, that's what it does. I can do this now. And it was fantastic. And then it became a kind of creative leap as well. And even today, setting up this mic, I'm actually recording under Pro Tools because it's such a reliable format to send you the wire for this interview. And I was hearing the music that was also on the session, and I started to sing. My singing voice is nothing to, to write home about, but 
I processed it and octaved it up about two octaves and did stuff to it. And it sounds like a synth now, but I'm, I'm pleased. So it's, everything, everything is playtime. Yeah, yeah, understood. And, and you know, <clears throat> as a producer for well over 30 years, you've, I, I suppose that you've learned that, um, A, there's always something you can pick up, and B, you never know where the next idea will come from. Yes, and the ideas are born of you know all sorts of factors, but one key one is actually technology. I mean, if you if you buy a new instrument or you buy a synthesizer or you have your guitar sort of expertly tuned up by a you know those kind of craftsmen that get little tiny files out and file at the frets more than one can do oneself. Make sure when you get it back in your hands, you have the red light on your recording because you will be inspired. You know, the guitar will just sing itself, or the synth will be like, I like that sound i never heard that before suddenly you're riffing and you don't want to miss that so even even a small rather kind of quotidian thing about pro tools you can do this with that right click blah de blah can lead to something quite fruitful creatively mm. it's interesting i was i was reading um a bit of a tribute uh to your work from a former employee of yours paul byrne aka apiento and and one and one of the things that he said was I hope that William presses record and plays guitar at some point soon. So uh, you're 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 an amazing guitarist. Like what 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 instruments do you gravitate towards when you're writing in general? Now I'm now I'm feeling hot and flushed because no one ever talks about the guitar. They just don't. They say electronic this and that. Nobody mentions that the guitar is my instrument. I mean that's what I started on, and it's half the time i use a guitar it turns into a synth but it is a guitar it's very expressive i mean ray of light you mentioned so all that guitar was me chugging away that's very nice that's very nice i remember paul he worked for gorilla records i remember him coming around to my studio once we were going to do a track we started something and <laughs> an hour into it he's going it's taking so long william and it's like mate i'm working really fast it doesn't just happen overnight setting up a session i remember that i mean with fondness of course but but uh, oh, thank you both for mentioning the guitar. There's, there's one right here next to me. It's a bit, it's a bit spider weird, but you haven't touched it in a week or two. But it's my friend. Yeah, and 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 at that time, would you say that Paul specifically was um, influential in terms of the Strange Cargo releases and the sound that was developed during that period? Well. It, started in long before that in about 83 when yeah. i signed with irs records miles copeland of you know, course came out with the the revolutionary idea let's have a record with no vocals on it and um which suited me just fine because i like you know a classical tradition growing up which in which case it's not like there's such a thing as instrumental music per se you know it's music and then there's music with with vocal and they're both are valid whereas in in popular music it would seem leaving out film music and so forth, that, that vocals were kind of there as a default, and if not, it warranted mention. But um, no, thing about, the thing about um, the guitar as well is that it's, it's just, it's never the same twice. You can't do, you know, you, 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 it's, you get lucky or you don't. And it's like those old synthesizers that predate MIDI as well. You know, you, you just, yeah, get the red light on because you may not be able to go back there. And in fact, get the red light on with a room full of people all jumping up and down because if you start to show off you do your best performance yeah yeah so so make sure people are in the room it's good if you're going to do something vibey you can hear the adrenaline you can hear the charge you can't fake it i mean rappers uh 
famous, aren't they, for having a zoo in the studio. You know, get the biggest room, book it for a week on end, and fill it with people. And when you get round to doing your rap, it's going to have this special energy because you're bouncing off everybody. And I keep coming back to that track, Ray of Light, but that was that was one of those tracks when there was always people in the room responding and, it, you know, it, it eliciting a great performance. And guitars are like that, you know, they're just, you move your hand, stuff happens. You don't have to sit and, you know, move, uh, like with a lot of music, it's like a word processor, mm. cutting and pasting. Mm. Not so with real instruments. I wish I could play piano like I play guitar. Mm. I'm a bit of a two-finger person with that respect to piano, but I something about visceral about the guitar. It's my second favourite instrument after the human voice. Mm. My third favourite, if you want to know anybody, is, my, is the thumb piano. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's your favorite. <laughs> well, like it's called a limbo. It's called a zamela. No, what is it called? A lamellophone. It's very popular in Africa, especially East Africa. And I'm a real fan of East African music. And it's got this very dreamlike quality. Um, yeah. It. It, uh, it, there's an artist who's dead, but his family carry on the tradition. His name's Hukwe Zawozi. He's on my record. I mean, not the one we're talking about, but the other one. Um, and that's illust- very illustrative of the absolute dreamlike trance quality of that instrument yeah you sort of understand when listening to the thumb piano um piano as a percussion instrument that rings out in a certain way like there's a there's an african group called kanono number one that also uh put elect puts the electrified thumb piano at the fore of their sound and it does as you said like give everything this dreamlike quality that you just don't hear anywhere else interesting interesting oh that's really i must check them out i mean it's slightly out of tune but beautifully in tune in a funny kind of way the intonation is 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 unusual and of course it's just bits of tin or metal nailed to a wooden box basically and you have to wiggle them to get them in tune and the heat affects it but the thing about those cultures they sing they always sing you know you hear about tanzanian families working in the fields and they're, they're singing the whole time everybody's singing these beautiful harmonies to these homemade instruments there's also a single stringed violin yeah it's just dream it's a dream a dream sound <laughs> and i that's always good so we we have a lot of different threads going right now and i'm gonna i'm gonna sort of go through them methodically um <laughs> okay first of all you mentioned Loving to play, loving to write when people are and improvise when people are in the room. This is this has been impossible for much of the last eighteen months. And yet like this has been like an incredibly productive period for you. And this this has been both a turbulent and productive period that recently resulted in your first solo EP in in many years, Starbeam, um, which sonically is kind of like a callback to your hit record pieces in a modern style that um, combine classical and electronic. Uh, to put it very simply, what have you been up to? <laughs> Making music. I mean, it's just like five simultaneous. It's like all of us these days. We do everything in series, in parallel rather, or overlapping. So lots of music, which takes time. You know, the, it, once you, I mean, it's, that's the paradox. I talk about this rush of instant, sort of serendipitous joy when everything you know jamming I mean I love to improv I love to everything's jazz but then at the same time everything's crafting and artisanship and spending the you think you're 80% finished when you actually got 80% to do just to see see to its manifestation so that takes time 
Plus, the things you have to do when you're an artist, I forgot. You know, you've got to <laughs> talk about your record, you've got to host various events. You know, you have, to, you have to be a bit spick and span about yourself, which is, <laughs> let's face it, all my clothes are moth-eaten, so it's, it's difficult. But doing the music has kept me busy. Um, delightfully so, I've loved it, I really have. It's been a joy, actually. I haven't felt this, this much gusto since, I don't know, 25 years ago. Really haven't. Oh, congratulations on that. That's that's amazing to hear. And and this this you know period of creative rebirth and productivity also came out of like a a sort of later in life rock and roll phase as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I did myself in. I mean, I took myself down. You know, up and down. Went very high. Went very low. Um, was very careless with my you know sort of uh, intake of substances. I'm not a substance kind of guy. I never have been. They don't agree with me, but I just went for it at a ridiculously late age, and it took its toll. And you know, I really did experience a very low, low experience. So, and and so I'm careful now. I don't want to go too high, you know. And 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 I think doing being productive and doing music, being good at what you do, and and and, and diligent is is a great way to just ease yourself back into normal life. Um. You know, to be honest, Matthew, I haven't been doing that much exciting things like all of us. We don't go out, you know, we're not stumbling around the streets of Soho every night. You know, it just doesn't happen anymore. And funny enough, you talk about music. I was saying how nice it is to be in a studio with a bunch of people in real time in, in the room. But I, I actually really like the remote way of working as well. Mm. And I find people say, I've been, I've done, I've had a lot of vocals sent to me where, crikey, they're all over the place. You know, technically speaking, they're, they're pretty knobbly, but they're, they're passion the heart is there which is like all i care about and i think that's that's been probably because there's there's been at their end a, a re, the release from having anybody looking over their shoulder it's mm. just you know a, a singer or a writer in a room with a mic and a probably logic audio or something or ableton can really surprise themselves um so that's the paradox it's great to be in a in, a, in an environment where everybody's you know jumping up and down but it's also great to be in a place which is just you and your own sort of thing how about that that's us that's us artists isn't it we're, we're contradictory yeah f scott f, f scott fitzgerald said it didn't he, he said what's the definition of an artist somebody can keep hold of two completely opposing points of view and not self-destruct ha huh. that could be anybody of course but it's specifically borne out over the course of your career. You mentioned that in putting out this new EP, Starbeam, you have to think about more about, a bit more about William Orbit, the artist, how you put yourself out there, being willing to shout about yourself. And you've had these two paths where you've been um, a producer in service of a pop star, as well as a, a quite successful solo artist. Um, where do you feel more comfortable? They both are very good for each other. I mean, if you are in the studio with somebody, you don't feel I'm a master all costs and print myself on this project because, hey, you know what? I get to print myself 100% on something else and now uh, therefore have them so satisfied. With one's own projects, you get to think about um, what it's like to be... I mean, like, you know, if you're a record producer, you need to have set down behind a drum kit and had a crack at it. I, I personally love to drum, but I can't get all my limbs into in work in order. I can't get the bass drum and I hat all going, I wish. But 
but you need to know what a drummer is feeling and thinking and and so being a musician on your own right especially with the outside of the studio aspect of it all is good good to know when you're in with an artist who's not only doing the music but they're doing a hundred other things at once and you can understand that and, and allow for that um i i make huge allowance i mean artists can be they don't i never i'm not i'm very very i'm not offended you know this is i get it's when i see these press reports about actors on the set and they say oh they don't want the grips and the 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 staff on the set to make eye contact and they're all given a very hard time for that as if it's some we totally unreasonable demand i always think mate you're you're a grip you're carrying around the lights you do what you do and you're good at it i'm sure you know and you keep your job but this art everything's hanging on this person giving everything right now and that's part of how they're doing it. And you've got to respect that. You know, it's like, don't work in the movies if you think actors are assholes, because they're not. They are doing an incredible job, and they're the ones that are actually paying everybody's rent at the end of the day, along with the director and, you know, the, cat, the photographer. But so, so the equivalent of that in the studio is I make a lot of, I have a lot of leeway for artists. It's like, whatever it takes to make beauty. Uh, and let's not stand on ceremony. I have to say, Matthew, you brought it up about the other plank of what I do about you know taking um, i'm gonna put my heads on for, my cans on for a second just to make sure being the being the dutiful producer and to make sure i'm actually recording correctly hello uh, one two testing testing oh hate the sound of my own voice take them off quickly um yeah no you, you mentioned about you know the top table and i must admit i've had a great year i'm loving this ep with, with i love anjuna they're the best people to work with it's been a joy and all the Dolby Atmos we were doing. By the way, that takes a lot of time, Dolby Atmos prep. But I, I'm starting to get a little bit of a wee bit of an appetite back for doing the kind of, you know, top table production, because I've got the skill set. Absolutely. Just need to remind people that I'm here, and I'm, I'm here to give you some audio love. <laughs> what's, what's an instance of your understanding of the artist's temperament and what a singer or a co-producer or co-writer needs to do do um what's an instance of you go like bending over backwards to like get the right take or put the artist okay. in the right place okay. well be very aware of what you can do technically so that you're not asking somebody to repeat themselves when you know you can fix it come on you know it's the same it, it, you know I, I i'm gonna liken it again to the movies i've never directed actors i love actors but you don't go asking an actor to make a, a second take if you know you kind of can make an edit here or there to, because the first take was brilliant. So don't overwork your willing subject because they may, you know, they may lose it. Secondly is bear witness. Always bear witness. You're always there looking. Don't, if you're even going to go to the bathroom, just, just, just make sure it's the right moment. Hold it in if necessary because you're bearing witness and, and, and it's a chemistry there. And if, you, if you're not there, it kind of breaks that spell. Third thing is make sure the record light is recording and it's technically in place. You know, it's no good if it's the best take in the world and it's distorting. So keep an eye on that and have a good team. Have good people that you, you know, because you need a help with the technicals. Um, and then the other thing is just, yeah, sort of, I've lost, I, there was another thing. Oh, yeah, make sure it's a good song. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how to produce a good record, William, answer. Pick a good song. And the other, and just, um, yeah, so singers especially, because singers are special, you know, they're, they're, and they can get frustrated with themselves. The best singer in the world can be on the mic and suddenly can't hit a certain note. 
that they, they can't go minor. It, it calls for a major, a major note, and it it just seems to keep coming at oh, five takes, wrong thing. Don't let your singers get annoyed with themselves. Mm. It may manifest itself they're getting annoyed with you, but they're annoyed with themselves because they are wanting to excel. And so you know, t- try things like, well, let's just switch the music out and sing to the drums. Mm. Be, you're gonna be, you're not gonna drift off key. Try in 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 free space. No music at all. Let's because quite often a singer will go. You mean you want me to sing like this? And the, you know the, the music stops and they go. And they sing it perfectly. You know it's like, yep, that's the, that's the one. Roll the tape. It comes out wrong again. Well, think about that. You know, actually take the time to do, to dwell internally. Why is this happening? It's the same as if somebody asks you the same question four times. Why are they asking me the same question four times? It's because they're insecure. Mm. So answer the question four times and be aware that that theirs is the hardest job and get establish a good line of communication if possible i think that's very key i've learned that over the years um sometimes i mean sometimes you can push the lever a little bit too hard so you know you want everybody to surprise themselves and come out of their comfort zone but sometimes people um i've had that look you know what are you doing here this is mad you know i don't get it it's not me and and all i can say is well Give me a shot. If it's if it's crap, then I'll take the hit. But quite often it works out great, and then everybody afterwards thinks of it as a fait accompli. So I like to push. And when again, I'm afraid I'm speaking in contradictions because part of me say I'm the easy guy that doesn't make sessions really fun and easy. At the same time, I'm also like, yeah, but we're trying to ex. Pink was the most grumpy singer I ever worked with. Bless her. I made it. I wanted her to come back for a third sesh, <laughs> and she wasn't having any of it. Fortunately, she's an absolutely ace singer, and um, that's that song I did with Beck called "Feel Good Time." Of course, of course, uh, with a with a spirit Randy California sample in that one yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, let's speak a bit about amateurism versus professionalism, and I and, and I guess that a way to address. Um, this dichotomy would be by speaking about your relationship with Beth Orton and your relationship with Madonna. Now, Beth bummed a cigarette off of you at a party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now I looked into her eyes and I was smitten. Yeah, and she was an actress. She was was a budding actress, hadn't sung before. But naturally I said, well, have a go. You know, here's a mic, you fancy a crack at singing. And she had this voice. And then we went... We went to Thailand for a holiday, but she had a delay because of her passport and uh, um, immigration got held up. It's, a Christmas, it's over Christmas, so she had to fly out a few days later. So I'm out there already with these cassettes that we've made, listening on the beach, just relaxing and then taking stock. So when she turns up, it's like, Beth, this is something. Have a listen. I, I, I was just so, so excited to, you know, about the whole thing. Was it amateur? Yes, it was. I mean, we were, there was no professional context to it whatsoever at the time. Much recording is like that. Whereas with Madonna, there's like a whole, there's a whole industry, you know, based around expectations for it. To be honest, though, when you're in the studio, none of that matters. It really doesn't. You don't think about that. You just don't want to think about it. You don't have to, you don't have to make yourself not think about it. It's all about the moment. And and Madonna was really good at creating that sort of space between the label and management for you to to work as artists. 
without she those did. pressures. She totally kept everybody at bay. I mean, we, there were, nobody from Warners came till the very end. Um, you know, she wasn't having it. People would come, some of her friends would come, some of her family would come, and that was always interesting to see the reaction of other people. It's good, actually. It was really good because it, it, it gave me a chance to, to actually realise I was not failing. You know, I wasn't sure. I was very unused to this whole sort of high pressure, of te- high technical pressure. You know, I never, I'd never operated, well, I hadn't then operated Pro Tools or anything like that. None of those solid state automated desks. Everything I'd always done would have been cutting up tape and making marks on the mixer for levels and being pretty deft with the faders and, and hoping for the best. And so this was a different level of technology. So I was at sea. But when people would come and listen, and this isn't the label, this is like people that, uh, friend, friends, not professional people, and respond, you know, like, woohoo, you know, be like, all right, okie dokie, I'm not going to get fired after all. Yes. <laughs> and this is such an interesting period in general. First of all, I, for the record nerds listening, I want to shout out the, uh, the single one-off spill 12-inch from 92. That one... Um, in my research, I was like going through the catalog and that one with William and Beth Orton, a one-off project is absolutely worth revisiting. Um, but around this mid nineties period, um, you have your own hit record with pieces in a modern style. And of course, like Adagio and strings being remixed, remixed by Ferry Corsten into a trance behemoth. A trance behemoth. Absolutely. Gosh, yeah, that man, I mean, uh, it's great because Tony McGuinness was the marketing director at Warner's at the time, working under Rob Dickens, and Tony was the man that was a lot to do with the artwork and put put me onto Ferry, who I had not heard of before, and led to that fantastic piece of music, and Ferry's such a brilliant man, he's he's done other things that, uh, we've done other things together, and he's just lovely to work with, but that was a smash, a smash, you know, it's still to this day, I can't not... If I'm DJing and I'm DJing a set that's like half the speed of that, I'm going to have to play it. Because some, <laughs> if I don't, they're going to come up with their phone and plug it into my, you know, they're going to make me play it. So thank you, Ferry, always for that. But it's Tony McGuinness then went on to, you know, fulfill his own personal dream, which was to do music. And he formed this band, or he joined Above and Beyond, who are the kind of mainstay of Injuna Records, who are now putting out my EP. So that's a lovely circle. But um, the 90s was... Well, looking back, it's a very fruitful period from the get-go. I mean, I started that... Well, it, it, first of all, I was discovering um, DJing, which then was vinyl, and I got my de- decks and started to buy records, you know, 12 inches from Black Market and DJ. Got, you know, handy with the mixing. And then there was Pirate Radio in London, which was going through a sort of fresh heyday of people running running across rooftops with their gear, running from the home office, you know, because it would get confiscated, and that very exciting... Very amateurish <laughs> pirate radio, which which was playing all these great tunes, and then of course the house, the house music scene started to develop with those clubs that which which weren't clubs; they were illegal raves. Like, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I I, I do chuckle when I think of how we used to sell drinks. We had a raffle. Mm. You buy a raffle ticket. Guess what? You won a prize, a drink. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And that, you know, of course, that turned into Creamfields and things late, and Ministry of Sound down the line and the whole EDM movement. But that was happening. I had the label, Gorilla Records with Dick O'Dell, and then all the cargo stuff, and then the pieces and the modern style, and then Madonna. And then, you know, it was, I suppose, when you, from top to tail, that decade was quite a cracker, actually. 
Yeah. So for instance, you know, you, you work with Madonna, you're, you're kind of primary on Ray of Light that comes out and, and a year later the Blur record comes out. Like there's this idea of like, did you feel like there was this Midas touch thing going on at that time? Not quite, because I had to work very hard. I mean, that's the secret sauce, you know. I mean, you're, you know, I mean, you're not just done in the studio and wave your arms and sort of sparks fly over your fingers, and then it's like everything is just, you know, a top ten hit. It's it's a huge amount of graft and uncertainty as well. You don't know, you know. It's striving for the best. So I didn't feel mildly, but I did think I did take it for granted. And then you know, and then I kind of like spent twenty years sort of. Dis, becoming disengaged from the whole process. I, I handled it wrong, you know. I, I, I won't do it this time round. I don't know where things are going to go with everything. I've got a good feeling about it next year. Okay, I'm an old, old dude now, but I, I know what not to do, how to have fun, ease up, work with the labels, work with the people, you know, enjoy it, be engaged, not just wait for the, everybody else to, you know, sort of do things and then be not happy with that it's, it's not the way I want to intend to carry on so I think I squandered it well and had some good fun I should also say of course of course you know you were living in the Leonard Hotel for a few <laughs> years you know but I but I wanted to ask like like okay I'm, I'm floating some like kind of like classic analogies at you but was there was Okay, it wasn't a mitosy period. It was a period of a lot of hard work, a lot of productivity, and a lot of good things that came from it. And then after that, like, does, like, the myth of Icarus mean anything to you? Like, does that, is that descriptive of what followed? I wouldn't put it as classically dramatic as that. You got, they mean the wax melted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, because I was never really hubristic, to be honest. Um, at all so I wouldn't say that's the right mythos there is probably another Greek classic I don't know I've started reading Plato again recently it's just everything's there I don't know Uh, I suppose I probably uh, good question I'll have to get uh, I don't have to get back to on that I did do a lot of painting a lot of gallivanting a lot of living it up um experimenting and in fact it wasn't as unproductive as all that because there's a lot of stuff that I did which, yeah, frustratingly at the time, nobody was particularly interested in, but it's like, yeah, but it's actually got legs. I I can use this. I've got huge archive of music, endless. I was never never unproductive. I just just didn't seem to... Then I signed up with the kind of songwriting for hire business, which I I did find demoralizing. It's fine for some people, nothing wrong with it, but um, I'm not down on it intrinsically at all. Because that's quite traditional within pop music, you know, brill building, you know, that whole thing with the 50s and 60s before before the likes of Joni Mitchell came along. It was people in teams. Nothing wrong with it. Music can be very teamworky, but I just wasn't... I used to get really insecure. I'd be around these people that I, a third of my age. It was just so good at coming up with top lines. And I, I needed to be organic about it. And, and I, I just felt um, like I was probably not so good anymore I lost my confidence mm. that wasn't the world for you like being in the room with a bunch of 23 year olds and trying to get five percent of a, a song that might be a hit or might go nowhere no no and people are rude you know they don't get back to you you, you know it's a it's a thankless job and i like a bit of civility you know a bit of engagement and so yeah it wasn't it didn't suit me but 
you know, we're all different. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the beginning of the early 90s and, and your involvement with rave culture, because I don't think that you've really spoken that much on record about potentially going to the orbital raves or like being out at Shum and like things like that. And, and like, I, I want to, you had, you were already a very well-established musician at this point, but, and you know, you're a London native. Comparatively established. Let's not, you know, yeah. But the reason I haven't is probably, probably because there's not much to say. I wasn't, I mean, I went to Shum, I went to, I went to the mall, but I wasn't a regular devotee every night. I just wasn't, I was busy, busy, that's the secret, isn't it? That's what we do. Uh, you know, we, we spend an awful lot of time doing what we do, stuck yeah. in our studio environment. So I didn't, I wasn't a raver yeah. that much. I like loud uh, music on a brilliant sound system and, and uh, part, you know, I love to dance and be around that kind of disco environment, but it wasn't top of my agenda. So I, could, I don't think I've got that much to offer. It's assumed I have because mm. I was there, but I wasn't, I was kind of peripheral to be quite honest. But but you were appreciating the records and the developments that were happening via via like frequent record shopping, DJing, all this sort of thing. Very appreciative. I mean, I I like there's there's a couple of DJs actually on Anjuna. There's Amanita from Moscow. There's um, Maya Jane Coles. You know, and they they just put together these sets, which of music I love. I'm in my happy zone when I listen to that. I love that deep techno trance. I don't do it myself probably not capable of it but i really like it and really appreciate it and i love to guess how do they get that sound and it's just so right you know and i i love that kind of i do love trance music yeah when yeah. it's done good yeah definitely so let's go back to some other formatives like i mean you you really sort of get started as a recording artist when you meet up with uh laurie mayer in yeah like more than a decade prior, like you met in 1979 and, and, and this group Torch Song was kind of like the beginning of your songwriting career. This led to everything else and what, and you obviously had the studio at the time, Gorilla Studios, like what were, how did you know that this was it and what were your early forms? I knew when I was a boy, when I, when I got hold, that we went on this trip to see this um, uncle of mine who wasn't well, he was invalid, and he'd had this uh, tape recorder. So this was a really long time ago, probably out in 1966. But you did have tape recorders then, and you had small ones as well, a little reel-to-reel tape recorder, and I nabbed it. I basically, it's like, this is gonna be mine from now on. And I, I, I can remember in the car on the way back home, you can record sound? You can record sound? Oh, and I just loved it. And I, I and when I could finally afford it took a long time of doing uh, jobs and pocket money stuff so I could afford a, a decent tape recorder. I was so ill with, with when it came. I thought I was going to die. And, and my mum said, it's indigestion. You know, you're just too excited. That's how much I loved tape and recording, always. But I didn't have the means to see it through. And I, I got out of school very young, when got a jobs, got all sorts of jobs. was kind of good at anything you know I could busk my way into anything but I just didn't want I just wanted to do music and I didn't know how to I'd been to a couple of studios I determined that they're the kind of place I wouldn't spend my entire life in but I didn't know how to and then, so when I met the others you just mentioned the circumstances we're living in a squat in an old empty school in uh, West London near to 
you know, Paddington, where the electricity and the gas would be just left on, you know, when they abandoned the school building, massive place. Next door was this emporium of, of second-hand stuff, half of which was instruments, musical instruments. And we had this job. I had a job for this old company, and, you know, I was actually making some decent money. Funnily enough, the company that I formed in 1979, which is still my company today, you know, how we all have a company to deal with all our stuff, its original articles of association were, it was consultancy to the petrochemical industry. Wow. It wasn't a dirty word back then in yeah. 1979. You know, it's obviously, you know, with carbon, fossil fuel and everything, it's a, it's a whole different thing. But so, you know, with, with some money to spend, some spending, some, you know, spending money and this instruments in this squat, whoa, just, just basically every day a new synth. It was fantastic. And so highly creative and it's, it was heaven. It was heaven. And that's, that's, I never went back into the, work, uh, the normal workforce again after that. I mean, I did have to run a recording studio to make ends meet, but it's still musical stuff, you know. Of course, of course. And this, and it was fairly common to, you know, find yourself in a situation like this where you were living in a squat. From my understanding, Sade and Robert Elms also lived in, like, a similar scenario at the time. Yeah. And, like, this was, like, this was, like, set the scene, like, where... Who who were your peers? How did you meet up with Laurie? Where would you where would you see everybody? Well, squatting. I'd been squatting since I was seventeen. Um, you know, I, I possibly sixteen. Sixteen when I first encountered the squat, but I was gone at seventeen. I was established all over various parts of Britain. Ended up squatting in Holland. Um, so I knew all about squats, and it was a different. It was a creative scene. It's different now. In fact, England was unique because in Europe, I found that squatting was very much more organized, very political. You know, it was like a more of a kind of political anarchist movement. Whereas here, it was just like, you know, it's a place to just park yourself and get on with your life. The laws were different. It all changed. But there was a golden period when, when you really did meet great people squatting. Having said that, um, Laurie, I, I met because her husband, so she's American, he's British. I knew him from school, as it, as it turned out. And... He got in touch, you know, when he saw what I was living in this squat, you know, in this, he was like, ah, oh, and doing this oil job thing. He's like, oh man, I can do this. I can do this. I can do it better than you, William. I'll do the job. I'll go and work from the oil company from now on. You just stay home and make the music. And so can you imagine? I was just like in, in you know, heaven. But um, really, and I'm curious. I'm always curious. I wanted to, I don't really like the stuff I did back then, but I did listen to records like slippery when it's wet when wet is a kind of jazz funk classic and it's like how is that done i'm going to do that with my little four track you know cassettes and things worked it all out sounded pretty lame but i wanted to know how it was done and i know the only way to do it is to try and do it yourself yeah yeah and then your you know your first record for your first full length for irs um is a pop record and um you know you are you're beginning to kind of delineate with Torch Song and and with your first solo efforts, like what your definition of pop is and and what your what what sort of songwriting you're interested in. And what how does that come about? Like what do you what how do you you're you're obsessed with the idea of songs at this point, as well as instrumental music. Melody. But what, Let's say yeah. melody. Yeah. Okay. And structure. So yeah. melody and I, melody and structure doesn't have to automatically equal add up to a pop song. 
Um, I like a good, well-crafted pop song to a, to a degree. You know, I mean, not, I'm not. I didn't when I was when I was at school. I hated it. I loathed pop. Um, I was into Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. I just couldn't get. I literally, Matthew, you're too young. It honestly, there was there was one radio station, and you got what you were given. And you got given it over and over and over again, really, really, you know, chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap stuff. I mean, it would just drive, it made me angry and terribly frustrated. There there was very little means by which you could listen to decent music. You had to have a friend who had an older brother who had a job who actually bought records because they were that expensive. And so you had to kind of make, make, make and match to a degree. And that informed my, you know, my ideas of what, I want to do myself in terms of structure. Like I said, nothing wrong with a good old pop song. It's done really well, but I like I like a piece of music that's as long as it needs to be. Um, you know, it's a short story, it's a novel, whatever. But I do like structure. I do like I like melody. I, I mean, I live for melody. Not that you'd think necessarily the case. I'm not I'm not sort of Barry Manilow, but I do live for melody as well as sonic structure and I, I I'm absolutely always structure like 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 Vitruvius you know like going back to the Romans and the, their sense of which they pinched off the Greeks of course talking about the Greeks again but they they codified it and he wrote these books didn't he about form and and how it connects to the body the human body that everybody knows if they don't know Vitruvius they know Vitruvian man you know the, the painting by Leonardo da Vinci of the man in the circle as to illustrate form and beauty and I do believe in that I don't have a theory for it it's it, it I know it by listening to it but I do like I like those old motets you get there's there's pieces of music from the 14th century and they would do a canon so they'd get this complicated tune and then they would repeat it a few bars later and again and again and it would add up to this everything meshed together so beautifully and mathematically and yet so sonorous that you know your whole body goes ah with the harmonies that to me is what I'm always trying to get to. It took me a long time. I don't actually start liking the music I was doing until really about Strange Cargo 2, if I'm honest. Anything before that, I can't listen to. Understood. I think it's misguided. Strange Cargo 2 comes out in 1990. Uh, The third volume comes out in 1993. Yeah. You're very uh, researched, Matthew. Yeah, and then we have like Hinterland, which is released under that alias strange cargo in 95 um yes all of these records are really quite interesting uh i I find myself like continuing to go back to the cruder and dorfmeister remix a million time uh with like this kind of like piano motif over your kind of like baggy drums and (laughs) yeah they did a good job it was really terrific i've had some i've had some good luck with remixes my favorite probably is when I did Water from a Vine Leaf, and Spooky did too, and Underworld did too, and I just think they're masterpieces. I was luck- I was blessed to get those mixes. Obviously, I love Fairies Mix. I, I really like being remixed very much. I like it. And and you know you're a prolific remixer in your own right. Like one of the uh, one of the most prolific <laughs> electronic music remixers of the '90s, I'd say. And I was an animal. I couldn't. I couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait to get the multi tracks because in those days, a big fat two inch tape, you know, and slap it on my machine, and and first of all, find out what how they do it. You know, like whoa, this is interesting. Uh, soloing all the instruments, I loved it. Always honouring the melodies and the chords. I mean, if you're gonna change the chords, you better know what you're about. You you know, 
but by and large, stick with the chord, stick with that, and have some fun. It was also a way to make a living. I have to be honest, I was not exactly selling records when um, Talk Song disbanded, and I wanted to keep my studio. So I had to rent it out to bands, you know, as a commercial studio. It worked great. And then do remixes as well, because in those days you did get paid quite a tasty sum, actually. Not anymore. Yeah. What were, <laughs> what, what were some of the, what were some memorable sessions from Gorilla Studios in those days? Well, we, I would party in there an awful lot. I mean, the, some of the bassomatic sessions and then the music that became Ray of Light. You know, this all, I suppose the whole 90s was a, do you know what? Now think about it. The whole 90s was one giant long party in my studio. It was pretty, <laughs> get pretty, pretty out, of, out of control. I liked that. Yeah. I remember one time, actually it was, yeah, I remember one time I was, had a, maybe a little bit too much to drink and my friend, I said, where's William? And I said, right, drag me in on the, with my arm on the floor. And they say, here's the producer, literally drag me in. And I never forget that. It was part theatre as well. But I loved, I loved the idea that you can be completely sort of random and still know what you're doing and still put, goes to tape and it sounds great. No, I shouldn't say that because, you know, I wouldn't want to say I recommend um, such misbehaviour. <laughs> you know, got to be careful what one recommends. But I have to say, it was, it was one long, wild, mad session. And I've, funnily enough, I've got, I've got the tapes now. I've, I had this huge job of digitising all of these old multi-tracks. So everything's recorded through valves or tubes, as you would say in America. Everything's on tape. Everything's analogue. And then when you listen to it now, it, it really jumps out. I'm just about to reissue the second Talk Song album on Warner's in the spring, uh, January, in fact. And listening to those old tapes was quite a joy, actually. You know, that sort of recording that we stopped doing in about 97. Everybody stopped. We weren't digital. Mm-hmm. And um, you can't really identify a kind of prevalent sound until later. You have to have some distance, but, uh, you know, because the 90s is a weird decade. Everybody knows what they think about the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Then we stop kind of having decades that are quite as delineated. Mm. And I think only now are people starting to cleave together some kind of sense of the 90s as a decade. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were, you were on both sides of it, like where, you know, you mentioned the people that you wanted to remix your music being like Underworld, cruder spooky uh obviously like we're talking about massive attack and like this kind of and renegade sound waves yeah 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 Yeah. and then like you're also on the pop side of things at that point heavily so you're you're kind of like again there are these like two planks to your careers career at that time there's a there's a kind of you know this is that liminality is very interesting but at the heart of it all is always this this inner eye or inner ear, the more accurate, you know, it's like whatever it is you're doing, whatever form for, for whomever it is, it has to pass this inner test. I'm not letting anything through unless I'm personally could listen to each bar in loop forever and be transfixed by it myself. That the kind of fractal mystery of how when you put sounds together, there's a sort of ghost, ghosting something goes on in, in, in the heart of it. And you've got to feel that way about every bar you do. So that, therefore, you can be quite wild and wanton with your choices, you know, because I, like I like an adventure, but there's always this aesthetic core that you stay true to. And you don't, you don't have to remind yourself to stay true to. It's fundamental. You can't change it. You know, it's who you are. And I think that's how you can be as 
eclectic as I am. Unfortunately, I think there's a price to pay for being eclectic, and that's people people don't know what to make of you. You know, it's like when you've got an artist and they look, have this look and this sound, it's like, good, I know what I want. Um, I want Tuesday, I want some of that, please. Thank you very much. I think myself, you know, my social media presence is pretty tiny. I'm, I feel quite, still feel very sort of marginal. And I think that's partly because of that. I never nailed my flag to any particular mast. And th- this has allowed for longevity, but let's drill down into this. For instance, you make a record with Beck, it becomes a pink record. Those two artists have such a different um, a different feel in the public perception. One is like this kind of marginal pop artist who also wins Grammys and has been like this paragon of like good eclectic taste for decades. Who, who I might also add has got a unique tuning, a, new, a unique tonality about his music. There's something, I know that's Beck from his guitar, he's singing the lot. He's a special special musician in my opinion. And, and then you have Pig who's a bit more chameleonic, an amazing singer who fits within a number of different contexts. But... You know, to put it bluntly, you know, these these cool like record musos that you came up with around would be like Beck School, Pink's not. Like that's what, that, <laughs> you know. Uh, she's into NASCAR. I think that's pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. But she I, was, you, as we were on the vocals, she was, I could hear this click, click, click. It was, a, I think she stopped now, but she was, the Zippo lighter was going. She's puffing away. She's like, <laughs> what am I doing here? I just thought, yeah, magnificent. But, but you yeah. get what I'm saying about this like idea of, good taste that's sometimes suffocating and you know Bollocks. yeah sorry mate i just i mean i i i like to square a circle i i you said some very nice things about me thank you very much you know i'm i'm lo- lovely to hear but i think my real gift the one that i am exemplary for that i have brilliant i can get brilliant at is arrangement i think the rest of it is in service of that i think i'm just really good at putting this next to that knowing it's right and if it's not making it right so i can take anything now there's no fucking excuse the language there's no um there's no great kudos in being a multi-instrumentalist or being a multi-style person or you know fusion is a word i mean i i kind of abhor actually the word fusion but it is that's what you're doing you're like a blacksmith with steel you know you can if you know the craft and you're good at it and you like doing it and just seeing what can i fit together to make something good that answers all your questions, literally everything. There's nothing that can't be squared, no circle that can't be squared, provided everything is cast in the kind of, the, the, the very finest of, of you know, of, of metal. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, like you mentioned, like Gorilla Studios was essentially one decade-long party. <laughs> and, yeah. and anybody who has partied for a decade realizes that there's, a shifting set of characters, you know, like there were, there, there's these people that were around a few years. You don't really know what happened to them. And then there's this new squad. And then there are like these people who have always been there and have always been around. Um, and what, to what do you credit your longevity in general? I, I do think about that, Matthew. I do think about, you know, come to mind, what happened to, we all do that, you know, whatever became of so-and-so. And how does it feel, you know, to be sort of, um, you know, not, not relevant anymore? Or some, sometimes people just do something different. They become a teacher or they sell real estate, you know, and it's like they had a great time, and, and, but not always. And I do, 
think about that because it gets harder and harder. I mean, you know, we all realise that first flush of youth is very, very alluring. You know, it's nothing. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. You're given the keys to the city, really. Um, to keep relevant is really hard. You have to really bleed. It's so hard. You have to work ten times as hard. Now, please don't cry any tears because, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got. A lot of privilege in my life you know with my uh, brought up by teachers and lived in England in a sort of comfortable you know n just you know n never went hungry okay no, never went hungry and always had a roof over my head regardless now that's really something that's a good starting point for life so no tears on my health but I have to say you do have to just work that much harder and be prepared to be to be uh, rebuffed you know and take it on the chin it, it hurts bloody well hurts but if you re if you're really keen to keep doing it it's all right if you're in jazz if you're in classical or maybe if you're a record producer and you've still got half a set of ears you can you can carry on forever gray and grizzled putting out music is a whole different thing you know and i can hear age in music i can hear youth in it and i i'm I'm sort of blessing, I'm counting my blessings now that I didn't ever get into anything too rigorously, you know, stick myself too fast to a prevailing trend or zeitgeist because I think I can, I think I can keep, I mean, put it this way, I still think I'm, I feel like when I'm doing it, I feel like I'm 22. I don't look like I'm 22, but I feel the same, the same thing. And I, I think that's a blessing, actually. I've put these records out on Anjuna and I'm ever so pleased, but we did pick from quite a few. You know, it's the same with my other project. There's an awful lot of things which I put aside because they just don't, they don't, they don't excite me. You know, it's like, yeah, you did it, William. You put a lot of effort and energy into it, but be honest with yourself, they're not quite right. So let them go. You just see the stuff that gets through. But I, I am capable of um, feeling a great, huge sense of excitement. Well, yeah, really getting on fire, basically. When I'm working on music, yeah, and yeah, <laughs> you know, it's never left me. And you are looking for that loop that you can listen to forever. Uh, this, yes. Yeah. Well, modern recording systems, you know, DAW systems, do that automatically. I mean, they if you, yeah, I don't know about Ableton. Some just saying they're designed to do that, and they do it by accident. So if you've highlighted a bar, you quantize to the grid, and you've got your bar or your half a bar, and it, and you, and you forget to you know, it's active, that cursor's going to keep moving and it's going to loop, 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 loop. So you can accidentally get little loops going or, or, or intentionally do that. And you want every bar, as I'm, 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 totally, I'm totally repeating myself, but it's true. It's really true. If you just can listen to every bar or every four bars or every cluster and be kind of entranced, even though you did it yourself, given that you know you've got a very high critical level, it's not like I love everything I do just because it's me, you know. Um, I, you know, I'm pretty hard on myself too. But there's a point when you go, "This is right. I just know it's right, and it'd be right forever." Good. Keep working like that, another 150 times, <laughs> you know, and then more. Yeah, that's it. Find out what you're really good at doing, that you really enjoy, and then push yourself so hard doing it that you still enjoy it, but it's painful now. That's how you can succeed in any any line of work. You know, writing included, writing, sport. Yeah. Formula yeah. One. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, with writing, there's the phrase, like, I don't enjoy writing. I enjoy having written. Yes. And that thing about having to Velcro your bottom to the seat of the chair, isn't it? You have to make yourself write. 
I, I know so many writers who have this wrestling match, you know, they'd really rather be doing something else, but it's the thing they love most, but they will prevaricate. I'm a great one for what I call creative prevarication, uh, constructive prevarication. Sometimes there's something that you put off and you put off and you put off. Maybe it's one of the most amazing tracks you've ever worked on, but there's so many choices, you're almost scared of it, and you put it off and you put it off. And then a little while along the line, something else comes up you're supposed to do. Maybe it's your tax returns. I don't know. It's something that you're putting off. And suddenly the thing that, that previously held the top spot in your prevarication chart now looks a very attractive prevarication. So you go <laughs> and do that instead. And it's like at the end of the day, ah, I did felt like I was goofing off, but actually I've been productive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your mind's working on the problem subconsciously same with housekeeping it's the same with uh, very very quotidian basic stuff you're tidying up your you know almost the equivalent of sorting out your knives and forks and spoons you know out of the dishwasher you do this kind of job because you you sort of feel a little bit overwhelmed by the creative possibilities you're not short of ideas but you've just they've just paralyzed you for a moment and uh, so you say i will just do some of that very basic work that has to be done whatever it is sharpen the pencils which is kind of a relief because it's mind, your mind is free. And of course, before you know it, you're sharpening the pencils and it's like, hello, hang on a minute. There was this guy, this physicist called F uh, F Feynman, Feynman, a famous guy, and he, he said it in science and discovery, it's not Eureka, I found it. That's the most important phrase in discovery. It's, hello, that's funny. <laughs> I, I think we should end there, William. That's that's very brilliant. Like, uh, I I really I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Shall I run it through autotune and melodyne and put some chords under it? <laughs> no. Please, like, uh, <clears throat> no. But really, it was such a pleasure and honor to speak with you. You've given me so much food for thought. In terms of other artists who are listening to this or other writers, I, I feel like this is like extremely invaluable. So thank you for being so candid. Great, and I, I, I enjoyed the Resident Advisor um, podcast. I've already listened to the Grimes one, the, the most recent ones were fascinating. So, so I'm, I'm honored too to be part of this. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with William Orbit and Matt McDermott. Our full archive is available for you to take in. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to Vanessa Maria's documentary about performance anxiety. That's available on all platforms right now. I will have a new episode for you next week. Until then, take care.